The importance of a, a firm foundation is something that you learn from a, a, a young age. Even my twins, who are two, understand the importance of a solid foundation, and, and they learn this through building Lego towers or building towers with blocks, which is something that they love to do. And they would start out by using the tiny Legos, and they would build those, and then they would try to put the bigger Legos on top of the tower, and they quickly realized that that wasn't, that that wasn't going to work, was it? Why? Because the tiny foundation that they had in, in the, the original Lego that they started building on it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't strong enough. It wasn't firm enough to support the rest of the structure. And so as they would build, the structure would gain in its height, but it would also gain in its instability, and it would waver, waver and it would wobble, and eventually it would topple over. And then they would learn, okay, no, I've got to put the, the thicker ones on the bottom because I need a firm foundation. Peter opens this letter that he's writing to not a local church, but to a group of believers that have been scattered throughout what he refers to as the dispersion. And he's writing a letter to these Christians who are scattered and driven away from their home and suffering under persecution. They have been forced away from everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, everything that was normal because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as Peter is writing to them, as everything is, is seeming that it's in a state of, of flux for them, he's writing to them and he opens by reminding them of the firm foundation that they have in Christ that allows them to withstand the storms of life. It is growing more and more difficult for you and I to be followers of Christ. Though, if we look around the world at our brothers and sisters that are in situations where it's illegal to be a believer, we can certainly rejoice in the freedoms that we do have, and yet we also need to be aware that those freedoms seem to be decreasing, and the, the liberties that we have seem to be taking, being constricted and, and, and taken away more and more and more. And so, this is a timely study, I believe, for us because as the original hearers of this letter needed to be reminded of their confidence in Christ, needed to be reminded of who it was that they served, needed to be reminded that it was worth it to follow Christ no matter the cost, I think so too we need to be reminded of that as well. And by God's grace, perhaps he'll delay the return of Christ another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 60 years beyond 100, 200 years. We don't know when Christ will come back. But on the same token, things could become increasingly harder for us as believers in a place where so far it's been pretty easy. And so we look to Peter for a blueprint for persevering, for this call for endurance. And we turn our attention to the opening of this letter where he anchors us to our hope in Christ so that we can stand firm come what may. Begin with me in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The letter opens with the author's name. There's not a lot of doubt about who wrote this epistle, Peter. Peter, an apostle of Christ, a messenger of Jesus Christ. This is the Peter that followed Christ during his earthly ministry. This is the Peter who pre-resurrection denied Jesus three times. This is the Peter that fled and was not there at the cross when Jesus was crucified. This is the Peter who ran with John to the empty tomb to see if the report from the women was true that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. This is the, the Peter that after encountering the resurrected Christ as we've been studying in the book of Acts on Sunday mornings and Saturday nights began to be one of the leaders of the early church. It's this Peter who's writing this letter. And he's writing this letter to those, he says, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We'll go over in, in more detail that word elect because I know that word jumps off the page at us and we'll cover that more in just a moment here. But just so that you get a picture of where this is, I've got a map that's gonna be up here on the screen. If you guys can advance to that map. This is modern day Turkey. And this is the dispersion. So as you think of this region, it's not as though these are three or four cities in a resort area that Peter was writing to believers that had gotten out of town so that they could just put their feet up and relax. No, this was a, a broad geographic area north of Israel where the believers had had to flee in order to escape the persecution that was being brought against them by the Romans and by other Jews as well. And so Peter is writing to them, and yes, he addresses them as elect. As those who are elect, he says, according, verse 2, to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Do you notice the Trinitarian formula there in Peter's opening? That he refers to the foreknowledge of God. and In other words, this this intimate relational knowledge of God that, that he chose us in that relationship from eternity past, that the Father chooses us. And then there's the sanctification of the Spirit. That's if, if the foreknowledge was the past, the sanctification is what? It's the present. That God is currently through his Holy Spirit sanctifying us, making us more like Christ towards the end, which is still future for full obedience to him that day when we will be like him. 
we will be glorified. We will be uh, brought to that, that full reality of being sprinkled with his blood and, and fully made clean, which is a day that is yet to come, a day in the future. And so Peter begins with this Trinitarian formula and then he wishes grace and peace to his audience. As I've already mentioned, Peter's writing to believers who are suffering. These are not believers who are kicking it up, taking, a, taking it easy and, and, and life is, is fine and all they're worried about is whether the, the decor committee is gonna approve the new carpet in the worship center. These are believers that have had to run for their lives, some of them. These are believers who have lost family members. Think about Acts chapter nine. Think about the persecution that Paul was leveling against the church and, and that's what some of these believers had been suffering under seeing family members stoned to death for their profession of faith in Christ, seeing family members imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ, being betrayed by family members, being betrayed by friends and by neighbors such that they uh, agreed to to leave everything that they once knew and held dear and, and to leave and to enter into this area, which is now modern day Turkey. And Peter's writing to this group where everything is is unstable. Everything is in flux and they don't know what tomorrow will bring. They don't know if persecution is going to follow them to where they have landed. And as he writes to them, he opens by reminding them of the immovable foundation that they have in Christ. Whatever was to happen, they had a future secure in Christ that no amount of persecution or suffering could ever alter. And the good news for you and I today as we read these same words that Peter wrote to them is that we can have that same confidence that there's a future for us in Christ, that wherever you are this morning, no matter what, or tonight, no matter what you are going through tonight, there's a future that no amount of suffering, no amount of depression, no amount of marital issues or problems, no amount of financial straits can touch the future that you have that's secure in Christ. Our first point together tonight is this, be confident in your guaranteed future. Be confident in your guaranteed future. we begin to see the, the hints of this in, in those opening words when he's talking about the, the elect and the foreknowledge of God. And there's really, as, as the passage unfolds through down through verse five here, there's, there's three reasons why we can be confident in this future with Christ. As sub points here, the first one is this, that our future with Christ is rooted in God's sovereignty that this future that we have is rooted in God's sovereignty. Again, Peter's writing to the elect exiles. That word elect means to the, the, the chosen ones. In Ephesians chapter one, verse four, there Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. That there's a security in our future because our future is ours because God chose us in his sovereignty, according to, again, his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, again, it's a, a word that has more to do with just knowing facts beforehand. It's a, it's a decision to decide to put his, his affection upon us. It's a, a love, it's a relational foreknowledge that God knew us relationally from before the foundation of the earth. Romans 8, 28 and 29, those whom he foreknew he also predestined that they would become conformed to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The foreknowledge that leads to that familial relationship with God, that is in his sovereignty, he not only elected us, but he elected us in his foreknowledge, that love 
that he has for us. And so we can have a confidence in our future because our future is a part of God's sovereign plan for redemption that he is working out that cannot be thwarted by anyone. There's another reason why we can be confident and he continues on there. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. The second reason why you can have a confidence in your guaranteed future is because that future is affected by God's mercy. It's enacted, it's affected, it's brought about by God's mercy. His mercy, his unmerited mercy. Mercy is is foundational to Peter's understanding of the gospel. We see that here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. What is mercy? Mercy is that act of God whereby he looks at our sins and does not give us the punishment that they deserve. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible through the cross, It's possible because 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so according to his mercy that he withheld the punishment that our sins deserve, the wages of sin is death, that that he did not uh, condemn us to an eternity in hell. But instead he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. (coughs) Again, remember Peter's experience here as he's writing. Peter's writing as an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And he's writing to those that perhaps weren't, including you and I. And he's writing and he's using words like a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not not some fairy tale. Not some third hand or fourth hand or fifth hand information, but from an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. Peter is saying that we can have confidence in this future hope because in God's mercy... He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think one of the stronger arguments for the validity and the the accuracy of the resurrection is when you look at the lives of those like Peter. Peter, who like we said earlier, was before the crucifixion of Christ denying Jesus three times to a slave girl who had no authority to do anything to him. Peter, who ran from the cross, not to the cross. That Peter, post-resurrection, was standing up and pointing his finger at the Jews and saying, this Jesus whom you crucified by the hands of lawless man, God has raised up from the dead. Peter, who was willing to suffer the beatings and the, the, the floggings and the torture for Christ. Why? Because what? He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And now he's writing to you and he's writing to me and he's writing to these believers who were suffering, who may have been wavering, saying, is it worth it to stay the course, to be a believer? And he's saying, yes, it's worth it. Why? Because there's a living hope. There's a future that's guaranteed for you. And I know it's guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's a third reason why we can have confidence in our guaranteed future. And that comes in verse five. Well, actually, let me back up to verse four really quick. I, I can't skim over this. Look at verse four, two, an inheritance. You've been born again to an inheritance. This is something that's ours, that's waiting for us. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading. There's a security in our eternal destiny when we read those three words. There's a a security that we can have as followers of Jesus Christ that that inheritance is not going to be destroyed. That inheritance is not going to be removed. It's unfading. It's imperishable. Nothing can separate us, right? Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And we even see that here, that this inheritance that awaits is undefiled, unfading, and he says it's kept. God has it reserved in heaven for you. Look at verse five now. Who by God's power, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Third reason why you can be confident in your guaranteed future is because you are being preserved by God's power. Kept in heaven for you who, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This being guarded by, it's a, it's a present active participle in the Greek, meaning it's an ongoing activity that God is currently preserving you in an active sense, in an ongoing sense, daily preserving you for your future salvation through your faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing, lest anyone should boast, but it's a gift of God. God gave you the faith that you needed for salvation and he now we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, guards that faith until the day of salvation. What that means is if you are a follower of Christ, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden go, you know what, I'm, I'm out. I don't believe in all of this anymore. If you are a follower of Christ and persecution comes like it was coming for these believers, you don't have to worry about it. Is your faith going to stay strong or are you going to abandon ship? Why? Because your faith is being guarded by who? God. For your salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So you see, we have this guaranteed future. This unbreakable future. This, it's going to happen. In Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul communicates something similar when he says in verses 13 and 14 that you who were the first to hear the gospel, when you believed you were what? You were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, right? Sealed, it's the image of the, the signet ring that the emperor used to wear and when he would send a message, he would put his, his seal on that envelope, which meant nobody was allowed to open that or break that seal upon penalty of death. Well, God has sealed you, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, with the Holy Spirit. That's his mark that he's put on you. So there's this future, that's this, this confident future that we have. And let me ask you, of those three reasons, and I'll go over them again, rooted in God's sovereignty, affected by God's mercy, preserved by God's power, how many of those are dependent on you? None of them. None of them. See, no headline or political power or policy can threaten the future that you and I have in Christ. It couldn't for Peter's original listeners and and, and audience, and it can't for you and I either. See, later in this book, as this book progresses, Peter's going to ask us to do hard things. Peter's going to say, you know what? Be holy as he is holy. 
Wow. Peter, where's the exception clause on that? And there's none. See, Peter's going to call us to, to put sin to death because he's going to tell us that Christ died for us so that we might no longer live for sin. So Peter's going to call us to live lives that, that are, are hard to live in this world, and yet he's front-loading it by saying, but you need to understand why it's going to be worth it because there's this future that you have in Christ that's guaranteed. That as you think about that and as you dwell on that, it's going to allow you to endure and to persevere no matter what comes. I remember going to play golf on the day of my rehearsal dinner when I got married and I did not play well. But do you think I cared? I didn't. I didn't. You know why? I was three putting and four putting greens with a stupid smile on my face. You know why? Because I knew what was coming. I knew I was getting married the next day. What, is a, what does a lousy round of golf matter when you've got your wedding the next day? Guys, that's a microcosm of what Peter's driving at here. When we understand that the certainty of the future that we are going to have in the end of the year in our daily Bible reading, just recently reading Revelation 21 and 22, and we read those things and we say, is that for real? And Peter's saying, yes. Yes, it's for real and it's guaranteed and it's secured not by your merit or your work or your efforts, but by God. And there's a confidence that we can have that enables us to stand firm, to have this firm foundation. And he then builds upon that idea. He says in verse six, in this, everything that we've just been talking about, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In this, you who have been driven away from home, in this, you who have lost family members, in this, you who have known what it is not to know if you would live to see tomorrow, in this, you who don't know if you'll ever see home or anything familiar ever again, in this, now, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Maybe James comes to mind right now. Count it all what? Joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance towards what, towards what end? Towards this future that we have in Christ, right? See, those who suffer pain or, or persecution in order to wake up and live another day, they need something, someone, somewhere to fix their hope. And Peter's just finished telling us that, that some place, that someone, that somewhere is, is the future that awaits for us in Christ and with God. And now what he's saying though is in light of that reality, we have to respond. We have to react. It should change the way we live when we think about this future that awaits for us. 
a few ways. The first way I want to direct your attention back to verse three. What's the first word of verse three in your, in your Bibles there? Blessed. Blessed be. It's a, a, a word of praise and of worship. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's a similar uh, statement there that Paul makes. And he goes on to list all of the different blessings that we have in Christ. And it's, it's an amazing statement. It's an amazing just run on sentence from Paul, praising God. What, what Peter's doing here is the same thing. He's praising God in response to this guaranteed future that we have in front of us. So part of our response needs to be worship. But verse six, he says, in this you we just mentioned the word, in this you rejoice. It's a word in the Greek that means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be overjoyed is what Peter is saying. To have a joy that the world looks at as you suffer and says, what in the world is wrong with you? To have that kind of a joy Why? Because you know what's coming. Because you have a perspective on your trials like Peter has that allows you to say that this is only a little while in verse six. It's that joy that allows me to foreput and say, it doesn't matter, I'm getting married. Who cares? But he goes on and he says, it's not only a joy, Look at the second half of verse six, though you've been grieved by various trials, so that, verse seven, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, another way that we respond to this is through our perseverance and our endurance. See, God is using this time and these trials in the lives of these believers and he does the same thing with us to refine our faith which he says is more precious than gold because the language here in the imagery is, is of the, the, the metal worker. And yes, the, 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 the gold may be refined in the furnace as the impurities rise to the top and are able to be taken away, but the gold can, can perish still by fire, can't it? Gold can burn up. Gold can be destroyed. Peter's saying there's something more precious than that that's gonna last even longer than that, that, that yes, may be tested in the crucible in the same way, but it's far more valuable to you and that's your faith. And so one of the ways that we respond is through our perseverance. And then verses eight and nine, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That fourth way that we respond to him is we trust him for this future. We trust him for our present. We trust him in the outworking of all of these things so that we will eventually obtain the outcome of that faith, the salvation of our souls. See this firm foundation that we've been provided in Christ, it should prompt a response from us. It should elicit a a reaction from us. It's the greatest news that any of us could ever be given and it should make a a, a difference in how we live our lives. Our second point tonight is this, react rightly to this promise. This promise of the future that's guaranteed by God through Christ as he guards your faith, react rightly to this promise. 
It should change the way that you think, the way that you act, the way that you look at the world around you. This way, if, if you can remember back, if any of you have children, the, the time that you found out for the first time that you were going to be a dad. I remember for me, it was, I think, nine or 10 at night. I did not sleep that entire night. I was excited. I was terrified. I was confused. I was anxious. I was thinking about what could go wrong during all the next nine months and then what could go wrong during the next 18 years. But then even as that pregnancy progressed, I remember looking differently and seeing things differently and thinking a different way about life. And then that child is born and and it changes even more. The way that you live and the way that you react and the way that you think about things. Well, likewise, this good news about your new birth in Christ and the future guaranteed inheritance that you have that's undefiled, unfading, and being kept in heaven for you, it should change the way that you live your life today as well. And so some questions for us. As Peter began by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's writing to those who are suffering, I want to ask you, does your relationship with Christ that has secured this future for you with God in heaven, does it prompt worship in your life? Does it cause you to worship God even in the midst of trials? And not just when we sing it is well in church on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night. Are you moved to bless the Lord for his goodness in preparing a future for you without sickness when you are sick right now? Are you moved to praise God for creating a world in which in his kindness there will be no more death as you mourn the loss of a loved one right now? Are you moved to praise God for a future where there will be no more lack or want or need when you don't know where the next paycheck is gonna come from right now? Does the goodness of God in this future that's guaranteed for you, this promised inheritance that awaits you, does it lead you to worship him regardless of your circumstances? Second, does your relationship with Christ that's secured for you this future with God in heaven, does it prompt a joyfulness in your life? Is there an abiding, sustaining joy knowing that what lies ahead is going to enable you to endure whatever comes your way? This is the mindset that says, I can have joy because this world is not my home. Because I'm a sojourner, I'm an alien, I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger and I'm, I'm headed towards the celestial city. I'm headed towards some place that is far better than anything this world has to offer. Uh, this week, I'm gonna be driving back and forth to, like I said, the Burbank area during rush hour traffic both ways. So you can pray for me. But in those four or five hours on the road, you know what's gonna be a sustaining joy for me? Knowing that this is temporary. That I've gotta make it through seven days of this, and then I'm done. Then I don't have to do that anymore. That's what fuels me as I go. And it'll fuel me each and every day being able to count down the number of days as I'm stuck in traffic, especially in the evening on the way home. Being able to say, okay, I've only got six more days of this, five more days of this, four more days of this. It's that joy knowing that that this is not going to last. 
Well, likewise, we can have a joy no matter what our circumstances are. Even if you are on cloud nine right now because things are going great for you, there should still be an abiding joy that says this world is not my home. And I hope in something far greater than even the good that's going on in my life right now. Third, does your relationship with Christ that's secured for you this future with God in heaven, does it enable you to persevere through the trials that come your way? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you able to have the perspective and the mindset of Peter or of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, when Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so bring it on. Romans 8.18, Paul again, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, as I drive home, yes, I'm going to be thinking about the temporal nature, but I'm also going to be thinking about the fact that when I get home, I get to see my family. And that's going to enable me to persevere and to stay the course. I'm not going to stop off and get a room at the Holiday Inn because I want to go home and be with my family and be with my wife and be with my kids. And so for you and I, as we're on this road towards glory with God, as this road becomes difficult and hard, because of what we know lies ahead, we're not going to be t- tempted to jump off and, and take the exit to, to do something that's comfortable and easy right then and there. Because we know it's not worth trading that for what waits for us at the end of the road. So it enables us to endure. Fourth, does your relationship with Christ that has secured for you this future with God in heaven enable you to trust him in the present? Though you do not see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. See, so much of your perseverance is going to come down to whether or not you actually really truly do believe and trust that God is who he says he is and his word is true. Hebrews 11, 1. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So as we understand what is waiting for us, It's going to bolster our trust and our confidence in Christ, which will enable us to persevere, though we walk through trials and tribulations and difficulties here. Verse 10, Peter says, concerning this salvation, that salvation that is the outcome of our faith from verse 9, concerning this salvation, He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Verse 11. 
Peter's bringing this introduction before he's going to give us our first call to action in verse 13, which we'll hit next week. But as he's bringing this introduction to a, a landing and to a conclusion, he's hearkening back to the, the prophets as they were writing about this future that he's now so explicitly laying out for us and, and rejoicing in and that we can read and say, yes, this is amazing and I can't believe this is true when Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead and now I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Peter's saying, but think about those who initially, initially wrote of these things, of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Think of them and he says, they inquired uh, of to what person or time the spirit within them was indicating. They, they pleaded with the Lord. They sought the Lord to say, Lord, show us more. God, reveal more to us. What is this all about? And Peter says what they heard in response was that they were not serving themselves, but us. He says, you. This passage in, in 1 Peter chapter one, it always reminds me or makes me think of passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. Passages that so clearly speak of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And for us, it's, it's so much so that if you take a, a, a religious Jew who has never heard Isaiah 53 because they won't read it in the synagogues and you read them Isaiah 53 so often that it's such a powerful moment for them in opening their eyes because they're understanding that this can't but point to the crucifixion of Christ. And for you and I, we read it and we say, well, yes, of course that's the crucifixion of Christ. But for a moment... Put yourself in the shoes or sandals of Isaiah or of King David. And what must they have been thinking? The thoughts, the, the, the questions that must have filled their mind, that even led them to go to, to God, to go to the Lord and to plead with him, to ask him to reveal what these things were about. And yet, Peter says they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving you and me. I've often thought about what it would be like to be born in a different time or a different age. There's those times in our life, I think all of us have experienced where we said, man, it would be great to have lived in a simpler time, in a simpler age. But one of the things, as nostalgic as we might become from time to time, that we can't deny is that there are blessings to be found in the current time in which we live. Yes? And one of the, the clearest blessings that you and I get to enjoy is the richness and the, the amount of theological information available to us literally at our fingertips. I mean, even more so than, than you think of the great reformers and theologians that, uh, that formed so much of our doctrine and our thoughts about God's word. And if you told Martin Luther that you'd be able to pull out this little gizmo gadget and, and pull up the Bible in whatever language you need it in and even search the Greek and Hebrew in it, I mean, can you imagine his jaw just dropping? We live at a unique time and a privileged time in the course of redemptive history. But y'all, the greatest of all of that that we possess is our understanding of the gospel our awareness of Christ, our awareness of the cross, our awareness of our need for all of that. And so as we seek to formulate, to, to, to come up with this firm foundation upon which we need to stand and anchor ourselves as we face suffering and persecution, the third thing that I want us to consider tonight is this, point number three, I want you to praise God for your position in history. 
Praise God for your position in history. That you aren't in the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. That you can read 1 Peter for yourself in your own language, in your native tongue, that you can understand it. That you have commentaries that you can turn to. That you live in a place where the church can meet freely and unpack these things and explain these things and talk about these things. These are privileges that not every person has enjoyed over the course of history. And they shouldn't be taken lightly. We should worship God and I say praise him because he's the one responsible for when you live, when I live. You and I did not merit the timing of our conception. It's not like there's a big boardroom in heaven with a bunch of infants lobbying God to send them to earth at a certain time of history. It's not like a a, a soccer match where God's the coach and all the first graders are tugging at his shirt on the sideline going, coach, put me in, put me in, put me in, put me in. No, God created you. He formed you. In an instant, in a moment, according to his perfect and sovereign plan at a unique stage in history where you would not only know the, the things that Peter and that David and, or, or that Isaiah and that David and the others long to know, not only at a time when you would know them, but also in a position in which you would come to understand them. See, we can praise God for that firm foundation because nothing can take that away from you. Why? Because you're being guarded by God's power through faith. See, God's sovereignly caused you to be born physically during a time in which you have. And he's also sovereignly opened your eyes to understand the truth of the gospel and your need for salvation. I referenced 2 Corinthians 4 earlier. There's another part of 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul talks about the blind, the spiritually blind, that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the lost. You see, that was each and every one of us in this room prior to God through Jesus shining, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, shining the light of illumination into our hearts so that we would come to understand our need for Jesus as our Savior. See, we can praise God for that. 2 Corinthians 4, again, it it makes it clear that this is an act of God. Romans 5 makes it clear that this is an unmerited act of God. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 5 that we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God when Christ died for us that we didn't earn this. And so we can praise God that they were serving not themselves, but us in the things that have now been announced to us through those who preach the good news to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We have such a privileged position knowing the gospel and having the New Testament at our fingertips and understanding what God did at the cross. And there are angels that stoop and peer and wish they could understand these things. Does that prompt us to worship him? To praise him? To thank him for that? I know too often I take it for granted. Well, of course I understand. God, I went to seminary, right? So foolish. Of course I understand, God. I have a, I've got an iPhone. Of course I understand, God. My parents were Christians. I was raised in a Christian home. What other option was there? There's plenty. Just talk to any of the guys around the table that have sons or daughters that are unbelievers right now. God's goodness to us men. 
We can praise him for that. Praise him for that. And it's going to allow us when the storms come and the storms will come. This is the foundation that we need in place to stand firm and to withstand whatever comes our way. Jesus told the parable of the two houses. Same house. Would have looked the same from the outside. Same storm came upon the house. One stood. Which one? The one that built on the rock. And so as we embark on the semester, I don't know what awaits us. I don't know what awaits you. And neither do you. This may be the the best six months of your entire life, or this could be some of the most difficult six months of your entire life. But either way, your foundation needs to be the same. That we can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again by his great mercy to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Yes, God, in this we do greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. And I know in a room this size, there are trials that are so different. It's such a, an important word that you inspired, that you put in this, that you breathed out for this context, this word various trials. Because even around these tables and as small groups ensue after this, there are different degrees, different levels, different categories of, of suffering that have been experienced by the men in this room. And yet the same truth is present that our hope is found in a day that's coming when whatever we are suffering through right now will be no more and there will never be any more suffering to come. Lord, transfix our eyes there. Fix our gaze there. Lord, allow us to be anchored to that firm foundation that we have in our future in Christ. Lord, we give this study of this book to you and pray that you would teach us much, that you would use this a great deal, that the words of this book, that scripture would be emblazoned on our minds and come back to us time and time again as we go throughout this study. And we trust this in all things to you in Christ's name. Amen.